Number 348, Brother Jeff has chosen as a hymn of encouragement. Number 348, and we'll use that at the appropriate time as the lesson draws to its conclusion this morning. As was mentioned previously, how delighted we are that each one has been able, with the blessing of God, to assemble on this Lord's Day morning, and to do so with all the character and understanding of a desire to worship our Father in heaven in spirit and in truth. We're commanded in John 4, 24, that in this modern era and age, that is the only worship that, of course, shall be accepted before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. This is that Sunday in the year which is set apart as Easter Sunday. It is that Sunday which, as the calendar makes the choice for that particular day, it is a rather complicated means by which it's determined. Our interest today, of course, as is the case on each first day of each week, is to worship our Heavenly Father and to do so exactly and no more or less than what He has commanded and that which He has declared He shall accept. It is the case this morning as we give thought to this particular lesson. You may have noted in the bulletin, it has to do with the matter of blood. Jeff has just led us in several songs reminding us about we serve a risen Savior. And furthermore, that of course, I know that He of course was risen. All of those remind us of those events that just preceded it. For after all, not many days previous, of course, He was put to death. And the nature of blood comes before not only the message of the New Testament, but that will be the major thrust of our discussion time today. Let me invite you for the next few moments to think with me about blood. I realize that there are some who become queasy at the thought of blood, perhaps the sight of it. And yet there are others, such as nurses and doctors, who work with it on basically a daily basis. But it is a topic of the sacred scriptures, and it is a topic that's often found therein. Our discussion today won't be much about the medicinal character of blood, although I did choose to mention some initial thoughts. All of us know that blood's necessary for the well-being of the human body. That blood, as it courses through your body and mind, it carries with it nutrients vital for each one of the cells of the body. That fluid is a very special fluid. You can't replace blood with water or anything else and it satisfies well. Furthermore, that blood carries waste products away from the cell. The cell needs blood for a number of reasons. In addition to that, we all know that blood has a clotting capability so that when we cut ourselves or other kind of accidents take place, blood has already a means in it whereby it can even proceed to help heal the human body. Blood's a special thing. As you can see there on that slide, the blood, the blood that the Bible mentions, at times, admittedly, it does have a relationship to something medical. But you'll notice at the bottom, perhaps much to our surprise, almost 450 times the Bible uses the word blood. Oh, almost 500 times explicit reference is made to this substance known as blood. Those references, of course, are such that over a hundred of them occur in the New Testament. This law beneath which you and I live, the characteristic of this that shall be opened at judgment for you and for me, and you and I give account to God based upon it. Blood is mentioned over a hundred times. It thus behooves us to ponder about the character and nature of blood and to see in it a marvelous necessity. You might notice I entitled the lesson, The Necessity of Blood. We shall learn today and be reminded of the truth and of the fact 
that blood is a necessary matter. If you and I ever expect to entertain the pearly entrance into heaven, blood is essential. If you and I expect ever to be cleansed from sin, blood is not only something that should be considered, it is a necessity. How does the New Testament paint that necessity? And in what way does it present it to us in such memorable terms and tones? I would invite you to begin then with me as we close that slide and observe it all has to do with God's plan for redemption. As we begin, let's first revisit briefly the Old Testament and highlight some of the entrances and characteristics of blood there. And the sole reason for doing so is to ask, is there a parallel consideration within the pages of the New Testament? It all begins back in Exodus 24, at least for our discussion this morning. There the children of Israel had surrounded Mount Sinai, and God, by His marvelous blessing, had presented to them that which you and I call the law of Moses. These people had gathered around that mount, and they had appreciated the sternness and greatness attached to the giving of that law. In verses 3 and 7 of Exodus 24, they said, All that God hath commanded, we will keep. We will observe. And they thus agreed to their part of observing the law of Moses. It was a monumental event. It was an event fraught with greatness and with interest because this would be the law God expected them to keep until finally the Son would come and nail that law to the cross in the words of Colossians 2.14. This law, though, you'll notice in the very next verse... Verses 8 and 9, there was something that was done at the moment that this law was agreed to by the people. It had to do with blood. We notice that burnt offerings were offered and the blood was taken and Moses sprinkled it on the people. They were sprinkled with blood. The blood of that burnt offering, the blood of the animal that had been commanded to be offered on that occasion... Moses, you see, had to do that which God had commanded. And in the pages of the New Testament, that very issue of the sprinkling of the blood on them is mentioned yet again. And we'll notice that in just a few moments. But appreciate now that the law, that law of Moses, at the very time it was instituted, accepted by the people, blood had a role to play. Look at yet another example. At the time of the consecration of the priests of the Old Testament, here were those singular individuals, those that were authorized by God to serve as priests. Important to be sure. Very much significant in the livelihood of the nature of, of the people of Israel. And yet you'll notice in Leviticus chapter 8, on the time of their consecration, at the very time when the ordination of the priest was done, blood had a very significant role to play. Let's rehearse it briefly. Three animals were commanded to be brought. There was a bullock and two rams. The bullock was to be slaughtered as a sin offering and its blood was to be taken and smeared on the four horns of the altar of burnt offering. Blood, as you see, had a role to play in purifying the very altar on which the sacrifices were offered. Then one of the rams was taken. It too was slaughtered. Its blood was to be sprinkled around the altar by the high priest. You'll notice, in fact, Moses was able to perform that activity on that occasion because this was the ordination of what would become the priests. There was one more animal. It was the other ram. 
it too was to be slain. This time, the blood of that ram, it was called a ram of consecration, that blood was to be taken and something very unusual was done. Some of that blood Moses took and smeared it on the right ear of Aaron and also of his sons. Furthermore, he took some of that blood and rubbed it on the right thumb of Aaron and his sons. And he took some of that same blood and rubbed it on the big toe of Aaron's right foot and that also of his sons. Blood. That blood signifying for them and for all of us the incredible significance that goes with having our ears attuned to what God has commanded, having our hands always ready to do His will, and to always be prepared by virtue of our feet to proceed to wherever God's will needs to be accomplished. Touching our head, our hands, and our feet. Those priests of the Old Testament era learned significantly about the importance of blood. This, however, was the blood of one of these animals, a bullock or a ram. Look at what's next on our list. Each one of those offerings that was offered, be it the burnt offering, be it the sin offering, or be it one of those others such as the offering attached to trespass, we notice that blood is mentioned in regard to them as well. Leviticus chapters 1, 3, as well as 4. In each instance, as that animal was slaughtered, its blood was collected and some of it was placed around the altar. Do you suppose that God had arbitrary commandments or was there something significant about all this blood? After all, the priests on a daily basis dealt with blood. We've already seen it. As sacrifices were brought, animals were slaughtered, blood was collected, sprinkled appropriately, their livelihood, their work, their mission dealt on a daily basis with blood. As you can see even beyond that, perhaps we ought to at least give a passing observation to the Day of Atonement. That only occurred once a year. The details are provided for us in Leviticus 16. On that one day a year, the high priest, it says, entered into the most holy place, but he did so not without blood. And as he entered there, he sprinkled some of it on the mercy seat the very place signifying the presence of God. And as that blood was made use of and used that day, we find again what a great blessing it was to the people of Israel when blood was involved in the activities of the Day of Atonement. That blood perhaps brings us to some of the final thoughts on that slide. And it is to Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 20, I would invite you to come. So far, our discussion has focused on these books like Exodus and Leviticus. But even the New Testament writer has this to say. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the New Testament which God hath enjoined unto you. The blood of the testament, as it's mentioned there in verse number 20, highlights for us the significance of blood. At the time of the ratification of that law and at the time of their appreciation of its ordination, blood was a part of it. Isn't it true and isn't it safe to say that the blood on the one hand went hand in hand with that law of Moses on the other? That covenant had much to say about blood and had much to say even about the presence of it. 
It is for those reasons that perhaps we can come to these extended considerations. The Hebrew writer makes a very valiant point based on that idea. He has thus begun in verses 19 and 20 to make this mention of blood. Let's read a little further. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. We find on this Old Testament occasion that all these sacrifices and all of these offerings of blood were done so for the purpose of teaching lessons about remission. Remission of what? Remission of errors, remission of sins, remission of that which brought ungodliness and that which was ungodly. Blood was a vital matter, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The thought, of course, for us will develop that more carefully, but here are some reasons for you and I to consider. Why did the God of heaven choose to use blood as the critical means for remission? Why didn't He use wood? Why didn't He use dirt? Why didn't He use rocks? Why did He pick blood? Why was it so that even under the realms and characteristics of Old Testament era, there was a vital and necessary consideration of blood? Maybe the clue is found in Leviticus 17. On that occasion, we read in verse number 11 that the life is in the blood. And we find in the character of blood, as we learn later in the Old Testament, in verses such as Micah 6 verse 6, the appreciation that if there's life in the blood, God was reminding them that your life is what's required ultimately and absolutely. When errors, when sins, when ungodliness, when iniquity in fact is that which is you and I, they were in need of giving everything they had and it took their life. Only in that way could there be remission. It takes everything. The life is in the blood, and only in that way is there to be found atonement for the soul. Only in blood is there found atonement for the soul. Water won't suffice. Any kind of other liquids won't do. It's blood because the blood is where the life is. When you and I violate the law of God, we put ourselves in position where it takes everything to be made right. There is, of course, a great problem. Your blood and mine is contaminated with sin. You and I, as we read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And therefore, my blood is tainted with sin. And the same is true of yours. And therefore, I cannot offer my own blood as an atonement for my own sins. Neither, of course, can you. There must be some other kind of blood because we know blood is demanded. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. We learn, of course, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 4, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is true, isn't it, as you can see upon that slide. Those Old Testament priests, for well over 1,400 years they offered sacrifices, collected untold gallons of blood, sprinkled it around the altar, sprinkled it on the people at times, entered into the Day of Atonement with it. 
untold how many gallons of blood were collected. And yet, the Hebrew writer informs us it was not possible, and it is not possible, that the blood of bulls and goats take away sin. They only pointed the way to a better blood. They pointed the way to a more perfect blood. One, of course, that would satisfy the yearning needs of the human family to be forgiven. Those needs, of course, for sins to be remitted. That blood, as we close that slide and think about another, perhaps we should look at the verse beyond which we read a moment ago. It is a very significant thing to listen to the Hebrew writer say in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 9. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Did you notice the word necessary? Here was an inspired writer affirming that those matters that took place beneath the Old Testament era, when Moses sprinkled the blood, when the various sacrifices involved blood, he said, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens be purified with these. There are majestic things in heaven this very day. You and I know it oh so well. God the Father reigns in absolute supremacy there. Christ Jesus the Son regally royal he sits at His right hand side. And it is a majestic matter to imagine the angels in perfect submission and all the matters that take place there. The Hebrew writer says there are copies of what's happening there that are taking place under the Old Testament at least on earth. And he said in verse 23, it was necessary that these things on earth be purified in a manner resembling the way in which they're purified there. It isn't arbitrary how that Old Testament then detailed purification. Moses had to do it the way God said. Aaron had to do it the way God said. For otherwise it wouldn't have been a copy of the way things in heaven are done. That blood that was used in the Old Testament. The Hebrew writer says it was a pattern. It was a pattern for the way in which ultimately that purification would take place. Perhaps it's time for the next slide and to look rather intensely, not at the Old Testament, but at the New. This perfect law beneath which you and I live, this perfect covenant beneath which you and I serve today, Let's look at some of the parallel considerations. We learned earlier that at the very time of institution of that law of Moses, blood was involved. Moses sprinkled that blood on the people there in Exodus 24, verses 8 and 9. Christ Jesus, our Lord, on the very night prior to His crucifixion. Of course, the old law was still in force then. He hadn't nailed it to the cross yet. But as Jesus instituted what you and I would call the Lord's Supper on that very evening, together with His apostles in that upper room, it was in Matthew 26, 28, He said, This blood is the New Testament. He had thus affirmed blood was yet significant one more time. This cup, this memorial is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The blood was going to be shed the next day. That's when our Savior shed His blood. And we learn that there is an everlasting memorial concerning the blood that He shed. 
But as you notice, some other parallels seem to be very greatly of interest. Blood was a necessary matter, as we learned earlier concerning the ordination and the consecration of the priest in Leviticus 8. That blood was put on their ear, their right thumb, and the big toe of the right foot. And only in that way were they set apart and consecrated for service beneath that law of Moses. Let's turn the page to the New Testament. Christianity today is capable of existence only because of the blood of our Savior. In Acts 20 verse 28, the inspired writer, we find their Luke recording these words for us. Paul was the gentleman who uttered them, but in his presence was gathered the elders of the church in Ephesus. And in verse number 28 of Acts chapter 20, Paul had these very penetrating words to say to them, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The church thus we see is purchased with the blood of Christ. You and I as Christians purchased with his blood and we're capable of existence as Christians only because of his blood. That blood perhaps leads us to also see this in 1 Peter 2.9. The priesthood and all of us as Christians are termed and called priests beneath this era. And yet we've just learned that that church of which we're a part only exists because of His blood. Oh, how needful is that blood. But let's consider it even more thoroughly. In Romans 5 beginning in verse 6. As Paul addressed the church in Rome, it was to them a very penetrating statement as he lifted their thoughts to this degree. He described the strength capable to be found through service to God in Christ. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him for if... When we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And there at the beginning of verse number 9, isn't it said, we are justified by His blood. That word justified means put in a position in which we suffer not beneath the guilt of those sins that have been committed. They're forgiven, remitted, washed away. Isn't that a bountiful thought? Isn't that an abundant consideration to think about the character of that blood? Beyond that text in Romans chapter 5, isn't it then safe to say that the New Testament also goes hand in hand with blood just as the Old Testament law of Moses did? But it isn't exactly the same blood. That blood was the blood of goats and bullocks and calves. Our blood is not of those animals. It is, of course, of Christ Jesus our Lord. And that blood leads us to some of these considerations. Think about that day of atonement for just a moment. As we mentioned earlier, and we read this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 7, He was very careful, that high priest was, to enter on that day of atonement, which occurred, of course, in the seventh month, tenth day. And as he entered into that day of atonement, it says he could not do so without blood. He took blood with him. And with that blood, he, of course, put some of it on the mercy seat. 
I wonder what the Hebrew writer says that means for you and me. All of those events foreshadowed something under the New Testament era. Let's begin reading in Hebrews 9 verse 7. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience. We notice that that high priest entered in, but he entered in with the intent to offer first for his own sins, and then, of course, for the sins of the children of Israel. But the writer is very quick to say that it was a figure of some other time yet coming because all that was done then could never make the conscience purely clean and perfect. Aren't we blessed to live beneath a better covenant? Aren't we blessed to live beneath a covenant dependent not on the blood of calves and bulls and goats, but a blood that is perfect in every regard? That blood highlighted as you begin reading in verse 11 of the same chapter. The Hebrew writer doesn't leave us hanging for long. Those things that were just a figure of the time then coming is explained in these verses. But Christ. In contrast to the entrance of those priests offering the blood of a dumb animal, we now see in verse number 11, But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Isn't that a mouthful? All of that description about that blood the high priests of the Old Testament era offered, and it says, but Christ, being come in high priest of far better things, didn't enter in with the blood of goats and calves, but He took His own blood, and He offered that blood for you and for me, for the sins, yea, of the whole world. As you can see, one of the last thoughts on that slide. Did you notice that there is, of course, one fantastic superior? We noted earlier in the lesson today that you and I cannot offer our own blood because you and I are tainted with sin. Jesus, however, had no such sin in His life. And in Hebrews 4.15, it reminds us, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And thus He could proceed to offer His blood, the perfect blood, and that blood to serve as an atonement for your sins and for mine. Indeed, Jesus did enter the holiest of all, the most holy place, but He offered His own blood. And as He offered that blood, you and I have the precious hope and promise too of entering that golden, most holy place called heaven some sweet day. It is with that in mind we come to the closing slide of the lesson this morning. This closing slide amplifies these initial thoughts we have stated about blood because the Hebrew writer isn't finished. I would ask you to make this contrast with me as well. Under the Old Testament era, for roughly 1,500 years, those sacrifices were offered. And oftentimes, blood was collected in gigantic amounts because, after all, they offered so many animals. 
And yet, isn't it a blessing to hear the Hebrew writer say in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 9, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but unto heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Those priests you see offered continually, often, frequently. And yet the Hebrew writer drives this point homeward. Jesus is not of that same frame offering these unwholesome and impure kinds of blood. For if so, He would have to have been offered oftentimes. Isn't it significant? He says in verse 26, He offered one sacrifice in the end of the world. Christ Jesus made that one-time offering of blood. Blood that can cleanse and purify the sin-stained heart of the sinner. It is that blood to which we turn so often as we ponder the greatness of what it makes available to you and to me. Is it any wonder then in Ephesians 1 verse 7 that you and I enjoy the greatness and benefit of the forgiveness of sins, namely through the blood of Jesus? There is no other detergent that can cleanse sin besides Christ's blood. There is no other agent or agency whereby that can be done. And for that reason, Peter in 1 Peter 1.19 said that you are redeemed by the blood of Christ, not with silver and gold or other corruptible things, only with that precious blood of Christ. It is for that reason perhaps we can close the lesson by noting a section of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10. After highlighting the fact that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, the writer calls our attention to one of the highest anthems anywhere in that book. When he says, beginning in verse number 9, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, standing daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, when he offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For he hath perfected forever them that were sanctified. It almost causes tears to stream down our face to think about one sacrifice for sins forever. And that sacrifice allows perfection to be, to be found. Not in the blood of bulls and goats, but in the blood of our precious Savior, the Son of God. As He offered that blood, is it any wonder the closing book in all the Bible calls us time and again to remember the Lamb of God which offered His sins offered His blood for the sins of the world. And so it was in Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. And it is to His name we turn our attention today. Have you been washed in His blood? Have you turned your life over in complete submission faithfully to Him? If you have, then you know what a blessing that has been, and may you continue faithfully until death. Revelation 2 verse 10. But if there would be one or more in this audience today 
that has never yet named the sweet name of Jesus as the Savior of your life, you've never yet allowed His blood to cleanse the sins, whatever they may have been, you need to attend to that need today. You are not promised tomorrow, Proverbs 27.1. In fact, none of us are promised even later this afternoon. Today is the day of salvation. Read 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. And if we could be of assistance to you today, a crowd of people would joyously rejoice with you. And so too with the angels of heaven, Luke 15, 7. The plan of salvation is demanded in this way. You must hear what God has revealed. Hear His Word, hearing the precious saving message of the blood of Jesus. But then you must believe it. John 8, 24, Jesus said, Except ye believe I am He, ye shall die in your sins. And so we read then in Luke 13, 5, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. There is thus the need to hear and to believe and to repent. But then He said, We must also confess before the hearing of others the greatness of His Messiahship and the fact He's the Son of God. We read that, of course, in Romans 15, or rather Romans 10, verses 13 to 15. And then we must be baptized for the remission of sins. In that case, we are able to contact His blood, and His blood washes away our sins. If you haven't attended to that, why do you delay? Why do you wait any longer? If we could be of assistance to you in that way, or to assist you to rededicate your life to His faithfulness and to the cause of what His blood brought about, we'd be delighted to pray upon your behalf as well. If we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways, won't you come? Immediately, while together we stand and while we sing.